Hello, and welcome to SearchCast, a podcast hosted by Isaacson Miller. My name is Rhett Sosby, and I'm a people and culture specialist here at the firm and a producer of this podcast, along with Devin Benjamin. I'm pleased to introduce today's host, Jackie Mildner. Jackie is a partner at Isaacson Miller and has led a broad array of executive searches in higher education, as well as for a variety of nonprofit organizations serving the civic sector. We are also joined by our guest today, Marcus Allen. Marcus is the Chief Executive Officer of Big Brothers Big Sisters Independence Region, serving children in southeastern Pennsylvania and southern New Jersey. Having experienced poverty as a child in a single-parent home, Marcus believes it is the responsibility of Big Brothers Big Sisters to ensure that every child has an opportunity to reach their highest potential and knows firsthand that one-to-one mentoring is a major part of the solution. When he was only nine years old, he met his lifelong coach and mentor who began to lay the foundation for him to attend college and escape poverty. He is a graduate of Temple University and began his college career at Payne College on a General Motors engineering scholarship while playing basketball. Marcus played basketball professionally in Sweden, Israel, Finland, and Argentina before moving to Philadelphia. He currently serves on the board of directors for United Way and in 2013 was appointed to serve on the Mayor's Office of Community Empowerment and Opportunity Oversight Board. We are so grateful to have the chance to hear from Marcus, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to Jackie. Thank you, Rhett, and hi, Marcus. How are you today? I am so great, Jackie. How are you? I'm doing well, and thank you for speaking with me. You and I met, I think, seven years ago when Tim McFeely and I did the Isaacson Miller search that brought you to Big Brothers Big Sisters. And yes, since then, yes, we did. <laughs> since then, you've had tremendous success in helping your organization increase their impact in the general Philadelphia area. I want to ask you about that work and how COVID has presented new challenges. But first, tell us your story. Tell us about you. Well, um, I think Rhett told a good bit of it. Um, you know, I, I will say that, uh, you know, I the way I see myself, I see myself as defined by my lived experiences. Um, and I truly believe that, you know, we shape ourselves into who we want to be, um, regardless of our experiences. And so I, I framed my story, at least for my benefit, to in, in, a, in such a way that um, I've tried to build off of my challenges and obstacles in life, uh, whether it was, you know, being raised by a single parent and never really having a relationship with my father to having episodes of homelessness as a child, to living in abject poverty, to seeing, um, you know, more violence than a young person should ever see in their lives. Using that um, as a, a launch pad, so to speak, uh, into understanding uh, that the world isn't, you know, a perfect place. Um, and there's so much need and, and people who are, uh, who could learn, uh, from my experience. And so I've tried to live my life based on that. And as an adult, I've spent all of my adult life really working to be a servant, to serve others, to help others, and the and and as I've gotten um, older and hopefully wiser, <laughs> um, 
I, I, I began to see that, you know, that servant attitude is not just about your career or just about serving the community. It is just something that you, that I've tried to hone in on in every aspect of my life. And that tends to um, make me a better leader. Um, and so I've, I've, I sometimes feel like I have an advantage over others who haven't had um, as critical advantage uh, disadvantages as I've had. And then I'm at a disadvantage um, to others who've had more disadvantages than I've had, or I'm sometimes at a disadvantage uh, because other people have had a lot more advantages than I've had. So at any given point in time, um, I try to have this self-awareness of who I am, where I am and what I what my purpose is. And so those life experiences have helped me to come to that uh, realization. Thank you. And through your career, this servant leadership and serving the community has always been present. You serve the community in a couple different capacities before coming to Big Brother, excuse me, Big Brothers Big Sisters, right? Yeah. Yeah, I um you know, so when I finished playing uh, professional basketball, um, which was like my lifelong dream, I never would have thought that I would get a chance to play professional ball, uh, more or less be able to get paid to travel the world to do it. Um, and through those experiences, uh, those different countries and cultures and just people, and, and I'm still in touch with some of those people to this day, um, it shaped me uh, to enter into this this social work um, industry here in this country. Um, and I started my, my work career off here in Philadelphia. I moved here to Philadelphia in, in uh, 2000 for the first time visiting Philadelphia and was just shocked by the amount of poverty and the challenges that, that were faced by the, uh, this Philadelphia, greater Philadelphia community. Um, so I started working with a company called Vision Quest that was uh, working with at-risk kids all over the country, and they had this really unique way of of working with kids. Uh, they use uh, they were were allowed to borrow ceremonies and symbols from the Crow Indian Nation out in uh, I think it's Billings, Montana, and so they 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 had this interesting uh, collision of. Uh, and, and, and to the owner's uh, words, he, he said the white man and the red man or corporate America and Native American culture where, you know, the the corporate um, culture or the white culture was more what they call the square and a Native American culture was more of the hoop or the, or the circle and had this really juxtaposed challenges of how do you combine the two to serve you know, for the most part, African-American kids who are having challenges in, in urban communities all over the, all over the country. And so I, I did that work for 10 years and it really shaped how I look at this work. And, and I was also doing that at that time, some volunteer work for Native Vision, an organization uh, that was started by Nick Lowry, Hall of Fame football, NFL football player, kicker. Um, and it, we would do these different things on these native American reservations around the country. And so at that point, I just really delved into the native American culture and it really shaped how I looked at, um, how marginalized people, minorities, whatever you want, whatever nomenclature you want to put on it, how 
this system, how this country um, had failed them. And, you know, what could we do to try to, you know, bring some equity uh, or to, to, to try to um, help in some way, some significant measurable way. And so I started that with Vision Quest and it just taught me so much. And I left there as a chief operating officer for this national organization, for-profit actually organization, and then decided that, you know, a friend of mine, a mentor of mine, Alvaro Martinez said, Marcus, I think the nonprofit um, field could use your talent. And I said, I, you know, do they pay you to do that? <laughs> right? I, I, I didn't know anything about nonprofit, you know? Um, and I, I ended up going into that world and there was a, a really awesome nonprofit called Achievability in West Philadelphia that was doing this really great work over 30 years, working with homeless families with a mission to break the generational cycle of poverty for these formerly homeless single families. And so, as you can imagine, Jackie, that really resonated with me growing up homeless, right? Uh, and growing up with a single mom. And so I remember calling my mom when I got the job as a CEO of Achievability, and we both cried on the phone and we talked about how, like, what that could have meant for us had there been an achievability when I was growing up, right? Um, and so I did that work for about four and a half, five years, and just really awesome work where we would, like, every adult in that single parent family had to go to college and complete college to be successful in the program. And we were building it, you know, to break the generational cycle of poverty. We believed in a couple of things. One, you had uh, have an education. So even people who had dropped out of school, had a GED, we, we had services to get them acclimated and, and, and shored up to go to college. Um, two, um, you had to have a job. So we helped to build a uh, 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 skills, 21st century workforce skills, resume building, soft skills, power skills, as I call them, like all of that stuff. And then also parenting. So we worked with them on this hundred indicator scale of how to become better parents. Because in order to break the generational cycle of poverty, you need to, you know, know how how do you undergird and support your kids, which every parent wants to do, but not every parent knows how to do that. And then fourth and foremost, um, uh, being a civic servant, like getting involved in your community and how are we going to raise this entire community to, together? So I did that work and it was very hands on and not only working with families, but also building up uh, impoverished communities in that area. Uh, so that really gave me a great sense of what community work looks like and what it feels like. And our offices were in the in what we call the hood. We were right in the hood, working with the same families, living with the same families we were working with. Um, and then from there, I, I went to Big Brothers Big Sisters and the rest is history, as they say. That's where I met you, Marcus, when you were at Achievability. And I love hearing you talk about the multi-prong approach to these issues that you were taking there. I wasn't sure we were going to be able to tempt you away, but what was it that drew you to Big Brothers Big Sisters? What was compelling? Um, I think the, the it, 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 just like achievability, it made me think about, you know, what resonated in my life uh, the, and the mentor that uh, was mentioned earlier. Um, I just, you know, just the thought uh, being able to do for kids what my mentor had done for me. And, and, I, and I'm not, I don't think I'm overstating or exaggerating this, but I do remember 
you know, this this light that went on for me as a as as a young person. Um, I uh, was talking with some friends when I was like in fourth or fifth grade and we were in the bathroom and goofing around and we were, we were talking about, and it was like my best friend just got Fran, Victor, Rodney. And I, I remember it so clearly. And we were talking about like, like dreaming about what we wanted to do when we grew up. And I think Victor said, I want to, you know, have two Corvettes and a, and, a, and, and some other kind of car. When I grew up, another guy said he wanted to be a millionaire Fran said he wanted to be an NBA player. And I said, I wanted to go to college. And I remember them laughing at me as if it was more feasible for him to play in the NBA than for me to think about going to college. Right. Um, And my mentor, Willie Williams, who's a cop, African-American cop in Thompson, Georgia, had began to talk to me about his experience in college. And he began to tell me that Marcus, listen, you have all the tools. You can go to college. You can escape poverty. Um, And he was my, my football coach. And I just remember him planting that seed in my head and in my heart um, that no one else had ever done before. And that, you know, as simple as that sounds, um, that stuck with me. And it, I know even now you hear people, particularly in, in my community, talk about, you know, kids can't be what they can't see. And he gave me a vision like he I could see it clearly from the conversations that he and I would have. And from there, it was all but done because it was in my heart and in my head at that point. And so nobody was going to deter me. And so the proposition of going to work for an organization like Big Brothers Big Sisters that specifically with laser focus, you know, uh, put all of its resources towards finding caring, compassionate adults and putting them in the lives of kids at risk or kids who um, may be marginalized in some way. I just, you know, it, it, it just was a no brainer. It was like, God has given me my purpose and now he's presented me the opportunity to serve in that purpose. And so um, Big Brothers Big Sisters to me was uh, just a great fit um, in terms of what I felt like my next step in life was supposed to be. Mm. Tell us a little bit about Big Brothers Big Sisters, now called Independence Region, the dimensions of the program, the amount of kids that are engaged. Tell us a little bit about it. So uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters is uh, interesting because it's it got its start in New York and I think it was 1904. Um, and there is a, a judge that was, uh, according to Big Brothers Big Sisters folklore, um, who was uh, charged with uh, trying to uh, deal with 10 kids who had gotten in trouble. And he was in court. And instead of sending and these are 10 white boys and he didn't want to send those boys to this white reformatory school um and he asked 10 men in court if they would be willing to mentor those 10 boys and 10 men stood up and volunteered and they were assigned to those 10 boys and that's actually how big brothers 
Big Brothers got started. Um, it eventually, you know, um, evolved to Big Brothers Big Sisters. Um, and then in 1915, um, hearing about the success that um, New York had had with Big Brothers, um, uh, it was started here by a, a fellow by the name of Charles C. Uh, Fox. And interestingly enough, he also started Fox Rothschild, which is a law firm here that still exists. And so for 100 years, Big Brothers Big Sisters and Fox Rothschild have had this really awesome relationship. Um, and when it started here in Philadelphia, um, it was built around finding the same thing, finding men to not only be mentors for kids, but also it was kind of like a boys and girls club type of thing too. They had rec centers and all of that stuff as it evolved. And we don't do that anymore, but now, and, uh, today we are, you know, serving about 3,500 kids more or less, uh, in seven counties here in Southeastern Pennsylvania and also uh, Southern New Jersey. Um, and we find 3,500 compassionate adults, who want to spend time and help us in changing the lives for the positive of 3,500 kids. And so we do that through an array of programs that we have both community-based programs, meaning we serve the kids, we go to their homes, pick them up, take them out for community events and things of that nature, um, to our what we call our site-based programs, where we work with corporations and colleges uh, and other institutions to um, bring kids to a work site and have those kids exposed to that work site um, during their lunch period at school. And then we take them, we bus them back to school. And so um, that is a way for us to not only expose kids to these skill sets and these people and, and, and this idea of work or purpose, but also they get a chance to continue to build a strong relationship uh, with an individual, an adult um, who invest in their lives. And the research tells us that uh, kids have better outcomes in life based on the length and strength of the relationships they have with mentors. And length and strength re refers to how long that relationship goes and how deep that relationship is. And so Big Rose Big Sisters has really focused in on the science and data around how, how do we help build self-esteem in our kids? How do we help to decrease problematic behavior? And how do we build hope and resilience uh, in our young people? And we continue to measure that through um, our, uh, uh, we have some tools, survey tools. Uh, we do self-assessments with both our kids and our families and our bigs and our program. And we continue to look at that on a continuous basis to improve how we continue to support and undergird um, these services to our kids and our community. Thank you. I've seen your statistics. The, the evidence that you have is just overwhelming, the impact that these programs have. There's so much that I can ask you about the programs, but specifically, I remember you were charged with the challenge of engaging more African-American men to become bigs in the program. How have you been addressing that particular challenge? Uh, great question. I um, Let me back up in, in history a little bit, and then I'll, I'll come to how we've been doing it here. Um, when you, your, your firm, your executive search firm, um, helped the board to hire me as a CEO, 
Um, I didn't know when I came on board that I was going to be the first African-American or black CEO in the history of this organization. And as you can imagine, that is is wrought with challenges. Um, I came to it and the board was very open and transparent about their lack of diversity. Um, you know, we had a board that was made up of pro- uh, majority, if not 70, 75 percent white men over the age of 55. We had an organization uh, that was made up of about 70, 75 percent white women uh, between the ages of 24 and probably 28. Um, yet we were serving a community of 70 percent black kids. And then on top of that, our bigs, our volunteers who were working with those kids were about 70 percent white men and white women. And as just from those numbers, you can see that we did we had a poor reflection of people who were committed and passionate about moving the dial and helping this community. Um, but we weren't doing a great job of involving people from that community in helping to solve the issue. Um, and so, you know, I knew that that presented a really great problem or a challenge for us. Um, and, and we went down the road of just having very frank and honest, transparent, uh, dialogue and communication on uncomfortable conversations and conflict and, you know, uh, continued back and forth. Um, and we feel like we take two steps forward and one step backwards. And, you know, people say, well, Marcus, don't feel like we're making progress. And I said, well, I like to dance. And I said, it just sounds like we're doing a cha-cha-cha. Sometimes you got to take steps forward and go backwards to make the dance look good. Um, and, you know, um, I, fo- I first decided to focus on the board because I believe, you know, uh, leadership comes from the top. And so we started to recruit like, really talented and, and awesome people of color and women uh, and people from the LGBT community to our board. Um, and so we, we, and that's always in progress. Uh, and also being very clear with the board and staff to understand that we're going on a journey and we're never going to uh, conclude or end or be able to declare success in this journey because diversity isn't a point in time. Diversity is a continuous journey. Uh, and so we were we, we started to make progress with that. And then we started to move towards the staff. And, and as I was moving towards the staff, we understood that. Well, um, well, I understood that, you know, I'm sitting here working with our local organization and, and we are a separate 501c3. But we also uh, have membership in the in the what we call federated model for Big Brothers and Big Sisters, our national organization, along with 240 affiliates. And I would go to our national conferences and I would see the same dynamic, right? Um, uh, mostly white people talking about black and brown issues. Um, and at the time when I was hired, uh, there was only one other black man that was uh, a CEO for almost 46 of 40 something um, affiliates that represented urban areas. So when we say urban, we know urban always means, you know, uh, 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 a densely populated area that has a lot of minorities. And so um, I began to speak out about that at the national level at the same time while trying to address it locally. 
And I learned a lot in that process, uh, not only about the, you know, how, you know, how hard it is to to move in a, in a, in a serious, intentional, strategic manner for diversity, equity, inclusion, but I also understood the differences between diversity, difference between equity and the difference between inclusion and how much harder it was to deal with the E and DEI than it was to deal with the D and the I. And Donna Brazil once said that um, in terms of diversity and inclusion, she said diversity is uh, being uh, invited to the party. Inclusion is being asked to dance. Right. And and I tell people, well, the E is um, when you're the DJ and you get a chance to play the music you like to hear. Right. I like that. Um, and so, you know, our journey has, you know, to this point has found us in a, in a position where we're now and our biggest challenge, I should also tell you, uh, across the board in Big Brothers Big Sisters is recruiting black men uh, to be mentors. And too often in that conversation, uh, people I've heard them say, I don't understand why black men don't want to step up and help their community. I don't understand why it's so hard to recruit black men and putting it on the black men that we want to get involved with us. And I say, well, I don't know a business that is successful that criticizes the customers that they want. <laughs> right. I just don't know how how do you how can you be successful if you're really not trying to understand the needs of your customer? And and so we started to really dig in and and I got answers that I kind of knew, but I just wanted to make sure we all knew them together. Um, and to make a long story short, um, today we have, you know, an African, a black man as the, the chair of the organization. We have a black man, myself as the CEO, and we have a black man who's the VP of programs. And I think this is the first time this has ever happened in, throughout the country in any Big Brothers, Big Sisters. And so for me, uh, it, it just makes sense. Not only are these men black, but they are they have lived experience in terms of what our kids and families face. Right. These are not just you know black men that they scooped up because they, they have the skin color, um, but they have lived experience. They are some of the best at their craft. Um, our chair is the partner uh, at a large law firm in, here in Philadelphia, in New Jersey, um, who's very in, at the top of his class when you compete with any lawyer in our greater Philadelphia region. And then our new VP of programs uh, was actually the, the executive director, CEO of Elwin, which is the, the oldest uh, uh, human services nonprofit in the country. And he was managing 900 people um, and doing an awesome job running that organization. Um, and then myself. And so so we have really dynamic and talented leadership that just happens to be black men. Uh, and I believe that what I believe a, a result of that is going to be we're going to be able to attract more black men to be bigs, more black men to be on our board more black boys can see images of themselves and see what they can be. Um, and that is um, why I went into this work because I remember what my um, mentor did for me. And I feel now that we can begin to do that for other kids, particularly those black boys 
who during this day and age uh, need those sorts of positive examples and role models because they're not seeing enough of it. Thank you. That's that's incredible transformational work. We can't ignore the pandemic, right? Tell me a little bit about how COVID-19 has had an impact on your work and how you're helping bigs and littles continue the relationship during this time. Yeah, th- this is uh, certainly a challenge. Um, I, and you know, and, and I want to be clear that I, I, my heart goes out to so many people who are, who are uh, suffering right now because of this pandemic, not just because of the pandemic, but also because of a, a vacuum in leadership to address what I believe uh, could have been avoided. At least some degree of this could have been avoided. Um, and, 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 and so I, I don't want to be tone deaf to this moment. Uh, yet um, I am like uncomfortably optimistic and grateful uh, to be a leader in this moment. Um, I, I, I think you, it's, it's not a fair assessment to judge leadership during times when things are good and going well. I think the best time to look at a leader and to assess leaders is when you have an opportunity to pit them up against a formidable challenge or obstacle. And this is certainly one of them. And so I'm excited about being able to lead uh, during a moment in American history or the world history where everyone's going to remember this. And you want to, as a leader, uh, know that you did the right thing or you did things for the right reasons. And so um, we at Big Brothers Big Sisters here uh, at Independence, um, as soon as we saw this happening and, and saw the conversations um, uh, with world leaders, uh, we started to make plans. And um, by the time we were doing uh, social, well, I don't say social distancing, but for all intents and purposes, that's what you hear a lot, social distancing. I choose to say physical distancing um, because social distancing has an implication uh, that is harmful for people, particularly kids. Uh, And at this particular time, we do not want our kids to feel socially distant. Uh, We do need to practice physical distance. um, And I get that. Um, But right now we want our kids to feel this virtual embrace, regardless if we're there next to them or we're on a Zoom call or we're on a phone call. Um, we, we're telling our staff like and our bigs that we need to do whatever it takes to make our, sure our, our littles feel that they have a village around them and, and, and that the, the, our social proximity um, is very close. We just happen to have six feet at least six feet uh, minimum distance between us. And so we say physical distancing, uh, Jackie. But um, we were we were able to somewhat seamlessly go from our face-to-face, in-person touching to virtual uh, within a matter of days. Um, all of our staff are working remotely. Um, and we, uh, you know, told our bigs and littles that they were no longer um, you know, able to have physical face-to-face contact uh, during this pandemic. Uh, yet and still, we had already started to build out s- certain curriculums online over the last two years because we started to invest in, heavily invest in technology two years ago. 
um, and also build our online curriculum. So it was it was great um, for us to have done that because it led to us being able to still engage our our littles. We call our the kids we serve littles, uh, engage them in a meaningful way. Um, and our bigs uh, were just just so savvy with technology. So it didn't really stop. As a matter of fact, in some way it enhanced um, how we were able to work with our littles. Um, and it also showed us something that research had already told us that uh, many times young people, uh, adolescents and teenagers, they tend to bond faster with an adult over technology than face-to-face. And so not only have we seen you know, more bonding happening. We've also uh, seen more frequent contacts between our bigs and littles. Um, and we've been able to like really gather a lot of information. I think more information about what's happening in the home now than we have in the past. Um, also, um, but that being said, we have also seen an uptick uh, in, uh, you know, some of the things that you don't want to see an increase in. Uh, mind you that our the, the the demographics we serve at least here locally are majority um, majority minority people uh, meaning mostly black um, being that Philadelphia is a, a majority minority city about forty three percent of the population in in the uh, Philadelphia area is black so and then majority of our families we serve ninety percent of them live below the poverty line. And so when COVID hit this area, and also I should also say Philadelphia just happens to be the poorest big city in the United States. It is the poorest out of 50 cities. It is the poorest um, uh, in the U.S. And so when you combine all of those challenges, uh, you can imagine COVID-19 hits um, and you see the spike in unemployment. You see, um, you know, the stock market falling. You see businesses closing. You also see a spike in uh, depression. You see a spike in kids running away from home. You see a spike in domestic abuse. And so um, we are continuing to train our bigs to to be able to identify those challenges in the home uh, and to be able to start to build out resources for kids and families um, who need them understanding that when the governor and the mayor says that you need to shelter in place, um, that may not be the most conducive environment for an eight-year-old who's living in a one-bedroom apartment with nine people. And then saying, okay, now you got go to you go to school, you got to go to class online, you don't have internet. And if you do have internet, you don't have a computer. And if you do have a computer, you got to share that with eight, seven, eight other people in the house. So um, we, 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 we are having those challenges. We also uh, had challenges where some families would say that they were out of food. And we've had bigs who delivered food to those families' homes, right? Put themselves in harm's way, of course, using all precaution, uh, you know, using face masks at a minimum. Um, and then also ident- uh, letting us know. And so about two weeks ago, myself uh, and Rich Berry, our v- VP of programs, uh, got with some of our donors and volunteers, and we organized a care package day uh, where we got places like Giant who donated a hundred um, uh, 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 bags of 
uh, non-perishable goods, peanut butter, pastas, canned goods, all sorts of things for our families. I mean, a big, big, nice, significant size bag of stuff. Um, we got restaurants to donate sandwiches that we included in the care package. We got Wawa to donate free coupons for at least five hoagies and drinks. We got another friend of mine to donate 4,000 masks, N95 masks. Um, so we had all these different donations that we put into this um, to this care package. And, and then we had volunteers who drove those care packages to each of the 100 families' homes and dropped them off to families. Um, as a token of our appreciation for them and to let them know uh, that they are cared about and that we understand that they are they are facing challenges that many of us uh, have the privilege of not having to face. Um, so we're doing things like that, uh, Jackie, that we actually had never done before and never thought we would do. Um, and some people may say, well, Mark, that sounds like mission creep. And, and I would say to those people, um, there is no mission creep when you're dealing with a pandemic. People need stuff now. Um, they need it yesterday, actually. Um, and so there's organizations like Big Brothers, Big Sisters and so many others who are saying, OK, we have to figure out a way that we step up and do things that our families and our communities need today. Um, and so we're continuing to do that, Jackie. We're continuing to enhance how we deliver our one to one evidence based programming. We're figuring out ways to how we can be more effective and efficient in raising money from our donors and utilizing that in, in very effective and efficient ways and showing the evidence of, of what those investments in our program are having on the families and communities that we're serving. That's remarkable, Marcus. Thank you. So many people are feeling forgotten right now that these gestures couldn't be more important. Uh, I think we're almost out of time. I'm so sorry about that. Tell Tell folks who might be listening how they can get involved with your organization. So just like any nonprofit, we are always accepting money. <laughs> we, we need uh, sometimes when people hear about Big Brothers, Big Sisters and us having so many volunteers, they, they assume that we don't need money. Um, but what they don't understand is it costs us about fifteen hundred dollars per year per, per child to serve each child. So we have a budget of about six and a half million dollars that we have to raise every year to serve all the kids we serve. Um, so there's various ways to do that. Um, uh, I, I love our monthly giving program because you're able to uh, donate as little as twenty five dollars a month. And it makes a huge difference. And by donating twenty five dollars, we send you stories and, and impact of what you're having, your money's having on our program. Um other ways you can get involved, of course, we always need volunteers in the communities where our, our families are living uh, and also uh, getting people to put the word out about that as well is great. Um, and then you can you can stay in touch with us. You can go to our website, independencebigs.org, uh, go to our Facebook, Independence Bigs and Instagram, Independence Bigs um, to follow us um, or like us. We are you know constantly uh, wanting to to correspond with the community at large because you guys got a lot of ideas and you have a lot of resources. And so I, I pray that you will use this as a filter to use your resources to have the impact in the community that we all want to see. Thank you. Is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't? You and I could talk for hours, I know. Um, <laughs> you get me every time, boy. So is there anything that, uh, that I should have asked you before we, we let you go? 
Well, the only thing I, I'll say, I don't know if you should ask me this, but this is just me. I think, uh, you know, one of the challenges we're dealing with is COVID. The other one we're dealing with in this country is, is that has shown itself as racism. And so uh, particularly as you see some of the recent police brutality, uh, yes. the death of uh, George Floyd uh, recently, um, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, and so many other names that people aren't seeing. And so one of the reasons that your listeners have heard me really focus yeah, of course, at Big Brothers Big Sisters, and I chair our diversity, equity, inclusion initiative across the country. I sit on the United States Civil Rights Commission. Um, but and and you know, one of our biggest things is creating safe and brave space for everyone who wants to be involved or is involved in our organization. We have an open invitation, and we want people of different faiths and religions and and genders and sexual orientations and backgrounds and lived experiences involved. Uh, however, we also know that um, we have a major challenge with uh, black boys and men in this country. And so um, my laser focus as a leader, in addition to everything I said today, is about how do we, and since we serve mostly black community, how do we make sure that black folks um, feel like they are humans? How do we make sure that white folks um, hold other white folks accountable to this idea um, that we're all equal, that we're all, um, you know, God's children, and that, you know, we all can, you know, should be out to make sure life is better for everyone's kids. And so um, that is something that I am taking a, a a serious, serious uh, approach to, um, Jackie. And that I've been blessed to be able to bring that to Big Brothers Big Sisters. And it has been just a welcoming addition to our service delivery and what we're trying to solve for. Um, so it's a great intersection for me because I get a chance to do good and also um, do something that I think is going to have a significant impact on not just the communities we serve, but this country. So um, that's just the one thing I wanted to add in terms of another thing that I'm focused on. Thank you. I'm so glad you were talking about that. Those issues are, wow, things that we are all looking at and you're having a very powerful impact. So thank you for your work you're doing and for the work that Big Brothers Big Sisters is doing. And um, I, it's been a privilege to talk with you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jackie. Uh, it's been a real pleasure um, to spend this time with you. Um, and I also want to thank uh, the Isaacson Miller Group for just doing this, hosting this podcast, as well as uh, your listeners for taking time out of their busy schedules to listen to conversations that you and I normally have about this stuff that I believe is important. Um, and I just appreciate the opportunity to share this with your listening audience. So thank you all. Yeah, thank you both again so much for that conversation. And thank you to the listener for tuning in. We invite you to visit imsearch.com for more information and be sure to tune in for future podcasts and follow Isaacson Miller on our socials, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Isaacson Miller. Isaacson Miller's podcast content provides general information only and does not constitute recruiting guidance or advice. No representations or warranties are made with respect to the accuracy or completeness of this content. All liability from the use or misuse of Isaacson Miller's content is hereby expressly disclaimed. The content contained in our podcasts should be used only at your own risk.
Thank you.